Well, I'm delighted uh, to share with you this evening, Kingdom Parenting, and I hope you understand that um, we're, the conference theme is, is all about foundations. And I, there's nothing more foundational than parenting. In fact, as David mentioned in his introductory comments, uh, at the conference we were at last week, it became very clear that the really the core to any society is the family. And a, a society whose families embrace Christian values and live those Christian values will be a healthy society, will be a functioning society. And uh, that was uh, that went deep with me. Uh, it wasn't new. It's just kind of new conviction, a deeper conviction that this is the key. Of course, historically, when um, when autocrats and people that have opposed Christ wanted to take over, they've attacked the families, and that's what's going on today in the United States. That's it's a big problem here. It's a big battle. It, wherever you live, you probably face it in so, at some level. But the reality is the family is the key. Healthy families lead to healthy societies. And only free countries generally give the families the freedom to do this well. In autocratic societies where everything is top down, it, it, they're very impaired because of, of the government. But even if you're in an autocratic world, uh, whatever level you can function you know, in Christian values, that's the way forward. So tonight, I want to give you a picture of what I think the scripture gives us and tells us about kingdom parenting. I'm going to present to you both a humanistic paradigm, which is the common paradigm, and I'm going to present to you a Christian paradigm. And please, I'm not presenting this to you to condemn anyone. I'm presenting this to you to encourage you, but I'm presenting a very high standard. Uh, there's no one that has fully met the biblical standard that I know of. In my lifetime, I've never seen anybody fully do this, but I've seen some that have been pretty good at it and a lot that are pretty, pretty poor at it. So the purpose of presenting this is not condemnation. It is conviction. Uh, my heart is to convict you of truth and help you then elevate your game, walk at a higher level of truth. So kingdom parenting based on timeless universal principles. And by the way, only Christianity of all the worldview options out there gives you timeless universal principles. And if you are in a culture today, it's been impacted by the LBGTQ agenda, which I think is just about everybody in the world, you know that they're attacking timeless universal principles and offering instead their, what they call their progressive principles. I hope you understand that their use of progressivism is a misnomer. From a Christian worldview, they are regressing from Christian standards. So it's regressionism, but they call it progressivism. The only way it can be progressive is they're progressively rejecting Christ, progressively rejecting the Bible. That's the only way it's progressive. And obviously, we don't, we don't view that as progressive at all. Timeless universal principles are built on Christ and the word of God. Well, I want to start out by just talking a little about the power of parenting. And just this week, I saw an article about a young man. He's now 19 years old, but in 2019, he was 15 years old. And he was with his father on a trip and they were in Geneva, Switzerland in the airport. And the father 
knew his son was a love music. And so he was looking for a piano for his son. And uh, it was kind of embarrassing, son. You know how 15-year-olds are. They kind of get embarrassed easily. With, oh, dad, quit that. I don't want to do this. Dad finally finds a piano and gets the son over there, and he starts, starts videoing. So the, the son gets trapped. And finally, he concedes, so he plays the piano. And to his dismay, when he gets to play in this piece, he's surrounded with people, and they're all clapping for him. He was shocked. But this was, uh, this was a picture of the journey for a young man that began with cancer. This man, at, at, 40 years, at four years old, had cancer several times, and um, he received radiation, chemotherapy, left, left scars, as cancer treatment always does. But after he did this, he began to study music. He was never really all that outstanding early on and didn't have a, a really firm commitment to it. But his father saw the gifting. His father saw the ability. I don't know if the father was a Christian or not, but the father recognized you know, the gifting. And we know gifting comes from God. So he was seeing how God had made his son, and he was encouraging alignment with the design of God. And one of the keys for all of us is to realize that divine design is a clue to divine intent. So as you see the design of God on anyone, you're seeing the hand of God, and you're seeing the intentionality of God, and you want to support that. That's what sound parenting does. We support the design of God on our children. So that's what this young man did. And this was a great example of a father and son who developed a close bond and the father would not let up. The father was unrelenting in encouraging him into alignment with God. So that's a great example for all of us. Hopefully that's inspiring to you. I certainly enjoyed reading the article and meditating on it and, and wanted to share that with you as a starting point. Now, when we're talking about parenting, I wanna give you a context. We have to think about the context. We've been talking for the last six months in our, our book discussions about generational blessings. The heart of generational blessings is parenting. Parents are the key. Parents raise children and children become parents and they raise children who become parents and they raise children and so forth. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a chain. It's an unbroken chain of generational transfer. You have to understand that every parent has got to deal with the same issues, a context of life. We live in a fallen world. God did not create a fallen world. He created a perfect world, a good world. And it, then Adam and Eve sinned, and that brought sin into the world. And God had a choice at that point. He could have he could executed the judgment, as he said he would, or he could have forbeared the judgment. You know, he was going to judge it because he said he was going to judge it. The question is when he's going to execute the judgment. He chose to forbear because we, he forbear for, uh, for basically for bears his judgment. We exist. That's the only reason we exist. I mean, I hope you get clear on that, that we are here because of the mercy of God in forbearing judgment at the fall. And so God executed then the start of a meta narrative. That's what he started there. And that meta narrative is a meta narrative of redemption. And we all live as children and as parents and as grandparents in this meta narrative of redemption. And we have to know this is a war. 
a war between two seeds. That's Dennis Peacock's terminology for it. Genesis 3.15 is the famous Protevangelum. That is the first preaching of the gospel. And this is where you see the, the, the synthesis of history in one verse. This is all of history in one verse right here. God is speaking to the serpent to pronounce judgment on him. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, or your seed and her seed. He, that is the seed of the woman, will bruise your head. And you, that is the seed of Satan, will bruise his heel. Now, we all know which one is more fatal. The bruising the heel is not fatal, but bruising the head is fatal. So what we have here is a prophetic picture of history, the battle between good and evil that will go on through all history. And this is the context in which you were born and the context in which you raise your family and the context you will be with grandparents. It will be the context when you transition into the Lord's presence. It is the context of life. Augustine, you know, recognized this reality. Augustine was the great theologian of the fourth century and arguably the greatest theologian since the Apostle Paul, who lived in the first century. And he studied this whole issue of the war between two seeds. He didn't use that terminology, but he used the terminology of the city of man and city of God. He said, the city of man is the default state of man. We all default to living in the city of man and thinking like, like humans, unredeemed, unregenerate humans. And the city of God is the way God is the perfect city that ultimately will be here in the new creation. But we have in this redemptive phase, this redemptive meta narrative, we're getting glimpses of the city of God and we're called to try to live up to the standards of the city of God. So some of the things he recognized in contrasting the two was the city of man is all about pride. The city of God is about humility. He saw that the city of man was about human potency. That is man in his own strength versus the city of God is about being divinely empowered. And he saw man's will versus God's will. Saw man's ways versus God's ways, man's success versus God's success, man's glory versus God's glory. All these contrasts as he described this conflict between the city of man and the city of God. This is our context. We are in this battle and the battle, the challenge for all of us is will we elevate our game to live in the city of man. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, being regulated by the word of God, will we begin to live aligned with the will of God as expressed in the word of God? If so, we move into living in alignment with the city of God. So that's the challenge we have before us. Now, I wanna, I'm going to present my arguments here tonight in three, three forms. Number one is thinking. Number two is actions. And number three is results. Thinking drives actions and actions drive results. Now I think that's pretty clear. That's pretty obvious. That's the way it works. Scripture here, if you want to look to scripture on this, look at uh, Proverbs 23, verse 7, where it says, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. In other words, as you think, that will determine what happens. That will lead to the results. So he jumps from thinking to results, but we know the thinking leads to action, which leads to results. So we're going we're gonna to go with that theme tonight. We're going to talk about thinking, actions, and results. So now I'm going to show you a, a, a mind map. I'm not, please don't frantic or panic when you see this. 
I'm just going to show it to you at the beginning. I'll show it to you at the end. I'm not going to use it to teach from. At least you won't see it. I've got it up here on one of my computer screens so I can see it. And it helps me prepare what I'm going to say to you. But I want you to see it because some of you might find value in it. Um, my wife loves mind maps, so she loves looking at things like this. I've got other clients that love this. So I, I'm giving this for your benefit. Those of you look at this and say, it's too complicated. It's too busy. Don't worry about it because we're going to simplify it here for you. But I just want you to see it. And you can see, I'm going to just point out a few things for you um, real quickly. Get my laser pointer going here. You can see at the top right here, I want you to notice that I've got the thinking. And you can see this side is the humanist side, and this is the Christian side. So here's the thinking on both sides. And you'll see above thinking, I have theology and philosophy. Theology is the most basic way you think. You have assumptions about God, whether you know it or not, whether you ever considered it or not, you have them. And whatever they are, they drive your philosophy of life. Your philosophy of life governs everything in your life. Then that drives your values, your principles, and your practices. So that drives your actions. And finally, that leads to your results down here. Okay, so that's this is the three-step. And you can see I'm going to do the same thing on both sides. Theology drives your philosophy, which drives your values, which drives your principles, which drives your practices, which drives your results. So if you're a good problem solver, you know immediately if you want to solve a problem in the natural, you're going to have to get back to the theology driving that. And that's one of the keys to problem solving. If you don't know how to do that, you'll never be a good problem solver. You'll put band-aids on things. You, know, you might get some behavior modification, but you won't really ever solve a problem until you can recognize the theology that's driving that problem and then go. And if you have the ability to correct the theology, you'll be able to change the results. So that's what you're trying to do as parents. You're trying to change bad theology in your children. And uh, so before, before you panic here, I know most people that buy children don't have bad theology. They, they don't even think about God. No, they do. Because everyone does. Everyone begins thinking about God, whether they're really highly conscious of it or not, they think about God and they have opinions on God and they have assumptions about God. So theology is always the root issue. All right, so let me go ahead and get off of this and we'll, we'll get into the simple things here. Now you have notes, you have these notes. Now the notes that Justine has are 15 days old. I have revised notes and I will make these available to you. But so as you look at your notes, it's going to probably look a little different because uh, I had a week in there with David and Bruce and they were here and we were at a conference and I couldn't work on anything that week. So I didn't get back to this until about four or five days ago. But when I did, uh, what happens to me typically is I go back and look at something I've done and I'm thinking, I don't like that. I don't like this. I want to change that. I want to change that. Everything changed. So revised notes will come to you later. But what you have in front of you is, you know, it's it's generally what I, what I want to talk about, but I've got better notes here, I think, now. So let me walk you through notes here, and we're talking first about the thinking. We're going to talk about the humanistic thinking on the left and the Christian thinking on the right. So remember, this is, this is how do parents think. So first thing is, if you look on the left, I'm going to use my laser pointer here, the first thing you know about 
a humanist thinker is they deny scriptural authority, period. That means they are biblically illiterate. Now, if your country is anything like my country, my country is becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. That is just the reality of what's going on. The humanism is rising up. In fact, we're seeing humanism at whole new levels in our local churches. We have people coming in that almost know nothing about the Bible. And it's, it's becoming very problematic. We're having to start some remedial Bible classes in our church to try to give them basic, simple Bible training because they've been all been influenced by humanism, even though they might show up at church. I don't know if they're Christians or not. We'll, we'll, over time, we'll see, but we know they think like humanists. So humanists deny scriptural authority. And of course, we know that true Christianity embraces biblical authority that we are submitted, we surrender. The Bible is authoritative for us as historically understood by the Orthodox Church. There are a lot of people out there claiming to be Christians today that do not embrace that. They claim to be Christians and they, they believe that they will tell you they have some regard for the Bible, but they do not believe the Bible as historically understood by the church. I'm presenting you the Orthodox historical view so if you've got exposure to other people that claim to believe the Bible that don't think this way, it's because they don't believe the Orthodox view. But the Christian view is this. Secondly here, humanists deny depravity in children. Now, that's real easy to do. You know, you see the baby come out of the womb and you pick the baby up and you just start smiling and doing and gooing and the baby starts laughing and well, you can, you just melt when that happens. Everybody does that. And how could you, how could you possibly say this is a depraved person? Well, you're going to have to get, overcome your emotions and face reality. That baby is fallen because that baby's just like you. If you're the parents, they're just like you, and you came into this world in a fallen condition, and so were your children. Now, what's interesting is if you are a Christian you and your wife or say are Christian, or you and your spouse, I should say, are Christians, when you give birth to that child, you're immediately unequally yoked. Because the baby is not a Christian. They're not born a Christian, even though you all are maybe Christian. So you need to know there's battles coming up. That's a clue. Now, see, those of us that know the Lord and are trying to be Christian, we understand this. We understand they are fallen from birth, and they have a bias to sin. Whereas the humanists, they think that children have a blank slate. Now, this came from John Locke's thinking. He was an 18th century uh, philosopher, theologian, uh, public, public official, and he developed this blank slate theory. And the blank slate theory says that each human being comes in with a blank slate, no biases, no bias to good or evil, and they can make unbiased decisions. Now, that is not what Scripture says. Scripture says we're born dead in trespasses and sins. Paul says there's nobody who seeks God, no, not one. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are multiple Scriptures that makes it clear that we come into this world fallen, not in a blank slate where we can choose. We are biased to sin from birth. So that's a big distinction right there. The third thing is that humanists deny depravity of the culture. They want to contend that, that the, the culture you know, has a choice, and we could choose whatever we want to choose. We could do what we want to do. You probably have heard that. 
man, there's nothing man can't do that man does, if man doesn't have the power to do. Man can do whatever man wants to do. That's very common, you know, humanistic thinking. And so that's led to things like lies. Probably the biggest lie out there today is transgenderism. There are a lot of lies, but that's a big one. And even the medical community has weighed in and said, I'm sorry, we can't make a male out of a female. We can't make a female out of a male. We can't do that. But that's just an example. There are many, many. I mean, this whole thing about relative truth, that's a lie. You know, I, I, one of my students today is, was going to be a math teacher. I said, do you believe in the new math? And so we had a conversation about that and said, you realize you, realize you cannot change two plus two. It is four. God defined it to be four. You can't make it five. I don't care what you decide to do. You can't do that. It's a lie. So we have to know we are dealing with lots and lots of lies, increasing lies. Secularization is a lie. You may not think that it's a lie, but let's just pay attention to this. Secularization means separated from God. Now, Jesus is God. He's the creator. And in the beginning, God created. What is accepted from that? What is not included in that? There's nothing that's excluded. In the beginning, God created everything. How do you separate creation in any form from the creator? You can't do that. It's impossible. It does not work. So we have to be clear. There's just loads, loads of lie. Every time you hear somebody say secular education, you know it's a lie. All knowledge comes from God. Education is about gaining knowledge and wisdom to live. All knowledge and wisdom come from God. You cannot separate true knowledge and wisdom. If you do, you're getting into false knowledge and wisdom, which means it's a lie. So LBGTQ, lie. Scriptures are clear on sexual norms. And the, the, the venue for sexual relationships is, is tied very strictly in scripture. It is in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, period. That's it. There's no other relationship in which sexual relationships are licit. They're sin. And that's, that's challenging in our culture today. And then we've got the critical race theory. This is an alternative to the biblical meta-narrative. Instead of the meta-narrative redemption, which scripture reveals to us is the true story of history, critical race theory, critical race theory tries to come in as a false meta-narrative. We have to recognize these are the things that are attacking our culture today, and people that are not grounded in the word of God get sucked into the lies and deceptions of the humanist. That means parents, parents that are not grounded get sucked into this thinking. Christianity is built on Christian norms holistically, which means everything. We go on here. Then we have denying spiritual warfare. Now, I just picked four things to focus on in terms of, of to illustrate the thinking. And this is the fourth one. When you deny spiritual warfare, you are denying the reality of a spirit realm. That is a spirit realm that where God dwells. You see, Jesus is fully man and fully God. The Father is a spirit being. John 4 tells us God is spirit. And those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, 
I want you to listen, pay attention to that John 4, because that tells us something about worship that I don't think we understand well today. Number one, Jesus answers the question of where to worship. And it's, it's not any one place, it is every place. And secondly, he answers the question of how we worship. We worship in spirit and in truth. Now, we think music is worship. Scripture says it's spirit and truth. Music, according to Colossians 3.16, is to be, be used to teach truth. So to the degree that you teach truth, and it also says refute error in Colossians 3.16, to the degree that you do that in music, music can be considered worship. But worship is not limited to music. Worship is about everything, how you live, how you process, how you parent, you know, how you work, how you conduct you know, public affairs. It's all an opportunity to worship in spirit and in truth. So we, we understand that as Christians. We, we are metaphysically aware of God, the spirit being. He is the one that we are responsible to, and we are here to serve him. And we're seeking always his perspective on everything, whereas the humanists never care about God's perspective. Metaphysical awareness is seeing reality as God sees it. And that takes a lot of maturity and wisdom. And uh, for most of us, uh, we need a lot of help. And that means we need spiritual parents in helping us learn how to do that. Just like you needed natural parents to raise you, you need spiritual parents to raise you. And part of what they'll teach you is how to see with metaphysical awareness. All right, so there's a the difference in thinking. Hopefully you, you heard that and understood that. So let's talk about actions, humanist actions versus Christian actions. And again, take a deep breath uh, in case you're this, is, this may be too stout. I understand it's a high mark. No one lives fully to the Christian standards, but we need to know the standards because we always need to be pressing on to the goal of the high calling in Christ Jesus, which is living up to the standards of living and thinking and acting like Jesus. So let's look at the humanist actions here. First, uh, they divide, deny divine design. So when you deny divine design, you will not support divine calling. So you don't see families coming together to support the call of God on their children. They're not even thinking about the call. You ask, ask typical humanist parents about the call of God on their child, they kind of let look at you funny and say, well, he, I'm going to let him figure out what he wants to do in life. You know, let him be whatever he wants to be. Okay. Well, that's not Christian. That's humanist. Christians look at the child and know that God will give the parent revelation before the child gets it about what the child is called to do. That's the way God works. I have never seen a parent, both pagan and Christian, that when I ask them a question, what do you see on your child? And they always see something. And I ask them, does your child see that? And almost to a person, the child, they can say, no, they don't see it yet. But I see it because God gives parents revelation because they need that revelation to guide the child you see god works on a need to know basis when you need to know something you'll know it so in parenting when you need to know something about your child god's going to give it to you and that's the way he works so humanists have no clue about this christians we proactively support the call of god on people we recognize there's a call of god on all of our heritage 
all of our ancestors, the call of God on us, on our children, our grandchildren. We are trying to think about that and work toward understanding that. So I'll tell you something that Carol and I do to try to express this truth. Um, we have four grandchildren and the oldest will be 17 in about three weeks. The second will be 12, uh, 13 in about, uh, about two weeks. The other two are, are eight and 10. On the birthdays of each one of them, we write them a letter. And we basically tell them what we see. We tell them what's happened to them and their family, it's whatever significant events have gone on, what we've observed about their lives and their friends and their choices and their skills, their abilities, those kinds of things. And we've done that from the day from the, their birth, the day of their birth, day zero, if you could say, up to every birthday up to now. We're going to continue doing that until they get to be 21, 22, 23. Somewhere in there, we will stop and we will not give them any of these letters until we stop. When we stop, we will have the letters for each one bound into a book, and we're going to give it to them and say, these are what your parent, grandparents have seen about the call of God on you as we've watched you grow up and if we help you grow up. So that's how we are trying to practice this truth, recognizing divine design and the importance of that. All right, so let me go on to the next one here, unsound training. This is a huge problem because we have a culture today that is largely passive about parenting. They just kind of let children do whatever. And so one of the things they do is they let children interpret life by themselves. In other words, children, when you start interpreting life by yourself, you're living like an orphan. I know your child is not an orphan physically, but they're a spiritual orphan because they're not being guided. So at least if you're functioning like the humanist is, that would be the case. And if you're functioning like an orphan, your ability to understand things is really skewed. So the culture is throwing all these lies at you and you don't have any way to really filter and know what is true. And so you wind up believing a lot of the lies. And then the parents continue in their passivity by, by doing some other disastrous things. For example, treating their children like, like buddies. That's a real popular thing here in the U.S. They don't use the word mate. They use the word buddy. And so they, they're always calling their children buddies. So every time I get in front of young parents, that's one of the first things I'm going to target. Stop calling your children buddies. They're not, you're not their buddy. You're their parent. You know, the buddies they like, they're not going to necessarily like you because you're going to give them truth and they don't want truth. And you can't be their buddy. The other thing that I see them doing is sometimes treating their children like adults, like, well, you can decide for yourself. That's what the spirit of Antichrist is trying to tell us about transgenderism. We, a five-year-old can decide what gender they want to be. And they will do gender reassignment surgery that's permanent and life-altering. I mean, this is, these are disastrous lies that are leading disastrous consequences. So please know your children cannot interpret life well by themselves. We know to interpret life, you need to be a son or a daughter. You need to let your parents help you interpret life. Another thing happens today is pain avoidance. Uh, this is really big. Um, I don't have time to tell you some of the stories that we've run into, but let me just say this. I have found in among Christian leaders, 
that many of them are very, very prone to pain avoidance. And the reason they are is because if their child hurts, they will hurt and they don't want to hurt. So it's very selfish. So they want to do anything they can to be sure their child does not suffer anything. So, so we have some terms for these kind of parents. We call them snowplow parents, where they go out and plow the snow, get it out of the way. Or helicopter parents, they hover overhead to be sure no problem. Nothing happens to my child. Or rescue parents. Rescue parents, you get in trouble, don't worry, I'm going to bail you out. So this is all about pain avoidance. And this is a flawed understanding of how God uses pain and suffering. James 1, verses 2 and following tells you God tells us to count it all joy when you're tested, when you are suffering, when you're in pain, when you are stretched, count it all joy because God loves you and is treating you as a son or daughter and is going to transform you through it. So Christian view of pain and suffering is very different. And third thing I want to point out is poor partnerships. What we've seen consistently with parents is they're unable, the humanist parents are unable to partner with with like schools or local churches because what happens is they tend to believe their children if you believe your children you're probably going to be sucked into a trap because your children's going to lie to you they they the natural <laughs> the natural language of anyone who doesn't know the lord is lies i'm sorry that's the way it is they're going to lie to you and i know you look at that child oh my child wouldn't lie to me you know, I, I know I believe my child. Well, you may believe him, but you're believing a lie. And you need to know, I, I, I guess I get uh, kind of animated about this because when I grew up, my parents never believed me. They always believed the teacher. And so if the teacher said something, I was in trouble. So this culture today is now that the parents are enabling the children in their sin. That's what's happening. That's what the humanists are doing. And the Christians, are get, a lot of professing Christians get sucked into that. You see, a real Christian, a, a healthy Christian, will recognize how to have healthy partnerships with schools and how to have healthy partnerships with churches where they can really help you. All right, let me go on to abuse. Abuse is a, it's, it's, it's rampant. It's rampant. You see, the opposite of abuse is empowerment. Christians should be empowering their children to align with the will and ways of God. That's what you should be doing. That means training them. You should be focused. You should not be using them for your agenda. You should protect them from the culture. No surrogacy. Surrogacy is where you're living out your unfulfilled childhood dreams in your child. That's what the humanists do. The humanists you are basically surrogate parents. Somebody wanted to be a star athlete. Well, they're going to be sure their son is a star athlete. Okay. Or wanted their daughter wanted to be a a cheerleader in high school and couldn't do it, they're going to be sure their daughter's a cheerleader in high school. That's surrogacy. That is out of order. Don't do that. Don't, don't try to use your children for your own agenda, to meet your own needs. Abuse is when we don't handle our children as we should, as truly those that God has given to us to train up in the will and ways of God. All right, the last thing here on this list is deny the covenant of marriage versus affirm the covenant of marriage. You see, Christianity gives us the covenant of marriage. Jesus is very clear on this. He, go, he appeals to Genesis chapter 2 as, as the 
inauguration of biblical marriage. It's a man and a woman come together. We have a culture that said, no, it's two people that love each other. Well, I'm sorry, that's not the biblical definition. First, you have the wrong definition of love. And the secondly, you have the wrong definition of marriage. You got two bad definitions there. That's make it, this is where two wrongs certainly don't make a right here. So you need to be clear that the culture is, is presuming the right to redefine biblically defined marriage. And so what that's leading to is all kinds of chaos. So we have abortion. We have divorce. We have non-biblical families, homosexuals claiming to be families. We have single parents claiming to be families. We have cohabiting people. In fact, the number of cohabiting couples has bloomed and marriage has declined. And with that, the divorce rates decline because the marriage rates decline. And, and even those that get married, they don't think they don't give a second thought to getting divorced. They think that's okay. This is very, very toxic. And this is all throughout our culture. And sadly, I, I'm an elder in my church, and I wind up talking to people in our community about these things, and they don't know that they're wrong. They don't know that cohabitation is wrong. I had the daughter of one of our leaders come and ask me that question. I was shocked. You're asking me if cohabitation is okay? Are you kidding me? I mean, that's you don't understand biblical ethics at all. So. We have to know the toxicity in this area is enormous. The influences, the social media is going to be a huge problem. Any media is going to be a huge problem in this area. You have to protect your children from this. Increasingly, where I'm coming to with our society becoming so, so toxic is you, you cannot allow your children a phone unless you have it locked up where they can't see anything you don't absolutely approve of. You can't let them watch anything unless you've approved it in advance. And you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to cut them off even from the, from the neighborhood because your neighborhood kids become the, the spirit of antichrist pawns into your home and your children. I've actually have one of my clients that recently in an attempt to protect his children, he sold his home and moved out of the city. And the reason he did that was they were homeschooling and they were, they were making sure their children had no access to social media, no phones, no ability to really hear any cultural conversation except through the neighborhood kids. And they found out that that's all it took. Neighborhood kids were polluting their kids. So they sold the house and moved out of town. They're now, there's five kids, a pregnant wife and a husband who's an attorney. They're living in a mobile home while they're waiting to figure out where they're going to go next. But they're determined to find a place where they can go and they can raise their children in the nurture and admonition of scripture and, and protect them from the toxicity of the culture. So this is the, the challenge we have today. Marriages today are held very lightly. The covenant of marriage is a divine covenant. It is a very, very serious commitment and it is not to be broken. No divorce. Abortion has no place in Christianity except the very maybe very unusual situation where the mother's life may be threatened and they need to make a choice and they choose to choose to save the mother. I can see it there, but other than that, I can't see it. Divorce, no divorce, except in very, very unusual situations. 
the scripture gives us a couple of little situations where that would be possible, but the maxim is no abortion, no divorce, and biblical families should be the standard for how we live as a society. That will be a healthy society, a healthy family. All right, so now let me just give you some results. Where does living this way take you? Where does living as a humanist take you? Where does living as a Christian take you? All right, so you can see right here uh, on this, the humanist produces children who are self-governed under self. The Christian produces children who are self-governed under God. Hopefully you can see the distinction. Secondly, the humanist produces pawns of the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is at work. Spiritual reality always drives everyone. So when you don't have the spirit of God in you, leading you and guiding you and directing you, you have the spirit of Antichrist directing you. It's just a question to which, to what degree you've been given over to him as to how, how rank and how pagan it will be. But humanists will tend to be mammon worshipers, narcissists, and hedonists. Whereas true Christians will become humble, submitted, and teachable servants of Jesus. That's what it is to be really a Christian. And a humanist will be susceptible to socialism. They will view success as the American dream, or the Asian dream, or the New Zealand dream, or the Australian dream, or the Hong Kong dream, wherever you're from. Uh, I found in traveling the world that when I mention the American dream and I tell them what it is, everybody said, oh, yeah, that's our dream, too. And I'll just summarize what it is. It's you work hard and make as much money as fast as you can so you can stop working as soon as you can and you can do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, and nobody tells you what to do. That's the dream. That is not what we're here for. We're here as God's ruling agents. The creation mandate is our directive. It's, it's unequivocal. It is why we're here. We're here to rule where God gives us authority to rule. That is, we bring forth the kingdom, kingdom alignment where we have authority, and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. So that's what we should be doing. We, we're not out there going, trying to escape and get out of responsibility, we are to exercise responsibility. And as we faithfully exercise, we get more responsibility. And as long as there's breath in your body, there's reason for your being, and you have a purpose in life. I saw this even with my mother-in-law when she died in 2015. And the last nine months of her life, she was bedridden, could not speak, could not feed herself, could not dress herself, could not bathe herself, could not walk. And she lived nine months like that. When she died, the day after she died, I went over to clean out her room and I'm walking out of the nursing home where she had been. And one of the staff stopped me and they said, um, um, when is your mother-in-law's uh, memorial service? And I stopped, I was stunned. I turned to him, I said, um, don't you have a lot of people die here? He said, oh yeah, we do, happens all the time. I said, do you normally go to their memorial services? He said, well, no. I said, well, why do you care about when her memorial service is? He said, because we want to go. I said, why do you want to go? You don't go to anybody else's. He said, well, you know what it's like here. You've been here. Yeah, I've been up here a lot over the last nine months. So you know what we have to deal with. You know, there are a lot of ungrateful people, and a lot of angry people and mean people and all that. Yeah, I've seen all that. 
He says, your mother-in-law was never that. She was always kind. She couldn't say anything, but she could smile. And every time we did anything for her, she just smiled at us. And we could tell she was grateful. We want to go and honor her. I saw right then and there, as long as there's breath in your body, there's reason for your being and God will use you. Even it looks like there's no way you can be used, he will still use you. So we have to know this is how God's universe works. Success in his universe is obedience to God to the last day of breath in our body, to the best of our ability, whatever way we can obey, no matter how, an, how much of an invalid we may be, do whatever we can do. And God will use that in ways that we probably can't even imagine. So we got to get success right. And finally, we've got to recognize that humanists produce children who will become humanist parents. We reproduce after kind. Christians will reproduce children who will become godly parents. This is the only way to build generational transfer. Well, you understand humanist parents are destructive. Where godly parents are productive. They are productive people who produce productive people. They produce peace and joy and contentment and satisfaction. They produce the advancement. If you study the advancement of human society, you look at how all this technology we've developed, you can track everything I have tracked back. It's always started with Christians, Christians doing the call of God on their life. This is what facilitates advancement. Humanism does not facilitate advancement only Christianity. So hopefully you get a picture here of what we're called to do. This is a mandate from God is, in fact, if you look at Genesis 1, 26, where we're 26 through 28, verse 28, it says there what God blessed the first people to do. He blessed them to do two things. Number one, to multiply, and number two, to master, which means to take dominion over creation. So we are under a directive, a blessing from God to multiply and master his universe on his behalf. That's what we are charged to do. This is the essence of Christian parenting, reproducing yourself, doing that yourself, reproducing yourself and your children so they can do that as well. All right, so that's what I wanted to run through with you. I wanna just show you again, this is the mind map. You'll get this revised one in the revised notes. So hopefully this was helpful to you and will be helpful to you as you begin to think about these concepts and how to be a kingdom parent. So let me summarize. Now I've changed my little graphic a little bit. I started out ta talking about thinking, uh, produces actions, produces results, and that's true for humanists too. But what the only really correct way to think is Christianly. Christian thinking produces Christian actions which produce Christian results. So that's how we are to raise our families. And again, I remind you, don't be caught up with, with condemnation. All of us have made lots of mistakes as parents. The best of parents make mistakes. There's no way to avoid mistakes. We are going to do that. But if you're convicted, that's good. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Don't be, don't let the spirit of Antichrist pull you into condemnation. Know this, whatever mistakes you've made, God is a redeemer. You confess your sin, 
You ask the Lord for grace to grow through it, to learn, and to be able to raise your children, no matter what age they are. By the way, once you're a parent, you're always a parent. You never stop parenting. It, there are different phases, but you never stop parenting. So whatever phase you're in with your children, that you have the grace to be able to, to help them grow. And something I have discovered about raising children, I have two daughters, Carol and I have two daughters that are around uh, late 40s now. And we've discovered something. And I'm not, I was shocked. And that is we discovered that as we began to grow and we over the last, ever since they left home, you know, we've really been on a growth spurt, been our accelerated growth spurt. So they were largely out of the home while we were doing a lot of our transformation. And we were learning things and growing in things. And we might be in some context and one of our daughters might, might say something that we had learned after they left the home. And I knew that we had learned it after they left the home. And I'm sitting there looking at them and saying, how do you know that? Because I didn't teach you that because I didn't know that while you were growing up. I know it now. I don't know how you know that. And the only thing I've come up with is somewhere or another, there's a bond between the, the, the parent and the child that it's there. And things in a spirit happen that we can't explain. We don't have to verbalize things to them and they can get things. So keep doing the right thing. This is what I think 1 Corinthians 7 is suggesting when it talks about the unbelieving wife or husband staying in the marriage because they will sanctify the family. If you're familiar with that text, it's a very interesting text. It's a puzzling text, but you know, having had that experience, I think I kind of understand what Paul is saying there. All right, I want to give you a principle of guidance. Hopefully you're convicted that you want to guide your children better. I hope you do anyway. So I want to just give you a principle, a very practical principle that you can actually take away. So you can say, I did, you can't say I didn't give you something practical, okay? I know I gave you a lot of things to think about, about how you frame life, how you frame your parenting. You need to learn how to do that. But here's a practical tip. <clears throat> this is a, comes from 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I'm not going to read the whole text to you. I'm just going to read a little bit to you and then draw some conclusions here, and then we can jump into our Q&A. Uh, Samuel, may remember, uh, was dedicated to serve in the Lord's tabernacle. This is the period of the tabernacle, and his mother had dedicated him to the Lord because she had a hard time getting pregnant, and she prayed and asked the Lord, if you'll give me a child, I'll dedicate him to your service in the tabernacle. She got the child. It was Samuel. And so Samuel now is dedicated. He's age 12. He's in the tabernacle serving. Now, Samuel does not know the Lord. You need to be clear on that. He does not know the Lord. You know, this is, we talk about becoming a Christian and all that. Well, really the best terminology is probably knowing the Lord. So the, the boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. So he served the Lord, didn't know the Lord. In those days, the word of the Lord, Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. So it was a very quiet time. You may have had some of those times yourself where it just doesn't seem like the Lord's saying much of anything. One day, Eli, that Eli's the priest that, that uh, Samuel is serving, whose eyesight were failing, was lying in his usual place. Before the lamp of God had gone out, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was located. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he answered. Now, how did the Lord call Samuel? 
Okay, we don't, it doesn't tell us here, but it tells us at verse 15. If you look down at verse 15, it says that it was a vision. That's how the Lord was speaking. So there's Samuel's having a vision here. And so when he when that happened, he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. And, and, and here I am, you called me. And Eli said, I didn't call you, go back and lie down. So he went and lied down. And once more, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up, went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. I didn't call you, so my son. He replied, go back and lie down. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. This is how God works. We don't choose Christ. The word of God is revealed to us. Christ is revealed to us. Once again, the third time. So here's the third. This is the third strike here. The Lord called Samuel. He got up, went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. You see, Eli or Samuel has no other paradigm but that Eli's calling him. There's nobody else that could be. He, he's only thinking like a naturalist, like what's uh, all reality is natural reality. That's the way a naturalist thinks. Well, Eli has metaphysical awareness. He knows that there's a God in heaven. He knows this God is personal and he knows this God communicates. So he is, what he's doing now is he's beginning to put things together. You see here, it says, uh, then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the boy. He figured this out. You see, the parent will see things before the child. Hope you can see that. He told Samuel, go and lie down. If he calls you, say, speak, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in the place. Then the Lord God came and stood there and called us before Samuel, Samuel, Samuel responded, speak for your servant listens. All right. So I'm going to just unpack this for you. The principle I want you to see, you see, Samuel did not have the ability to see reality correctly. So the first step is he's got to see reality correctly. Children will not see reality as well as parents. Hopefully parents that with metaphysical awareness will see it far more robustly and they can explain uh, that there's something far more to it than what you see. So I've got this imagery here of an iceberg. You see the top of the iceberg above the water. You see that, but you can't see what's below if you're on a ship on the surface. You can only see what's above the water. That's a picture of what we see in the natural. We see 20% and 80% we don't see because that requires metaphysical awareness. So you, the first thing you have to get is a father figure has to explain to you there is a God in heaven and he is transcendent and he is char in charge of his universe. He exists and things happen because he ordains that they happen. And sometimes we can't explain them and we can't understand them. So we have to see reality. Then we have to understand reality. We got a God in heaven who exists and he communicates. That's very important. He exists and he communicates. Okay, if he communicates, so that's good. Okay, I get it. There is there is spiritual reality. A God exists and he communicates. So what's the next step? The next step is I've got to draw the right conclusions. That God in heaven may communicate with you. Now, see, Eli doesn't know if he's going to communicate for sure. So he's just making aware. This is a personal God who communicates and he may communicate with you. So the right conclusion is that could happen. And if it happens, here's your choice. Your choice is your servant listens, obedience. So this is a four-step process to guide your children into reality. 
That is see reality correctly, understand it correctly, draw right conclusions, make right choices. You want them to make right choices? This is the process you take them through. You need to become skilled as a parent in doing this, recognizing that God has a perspective on everything. It doesn't matter what it is. God always had as, as a perspective and the best way to live in reality with God is to go through this process. And I hope you understand God is in reality always and, and he's inviting us to join him. The question is, will we join him or not? Or will we live in our unreality? It's unreality is very comfortable. We like it. It's hard to get into reality because we've got to deal with hard issues. Whatever's going on in your life that's hard and difficult right now, guess what? God's there. God has a perspective. He has a will. And he's doing something in and through it. Even if it's very painful and difficult, he's there doing something. And this is where, as you mature in Christ, you come to understand he is always working everything together for good. And when I say good, I don't mean good as you define it or I define it. It's good as he defines it. And good is a divine attribute. So when you say something is good, you're, you're saying it reflects God. So he's trying to get you to reflect him. So in every situation, he's working good. He's trying to polish you, chisel on you, so you can reflect him better and better in everything you do. So this is kingdom parenting. Thinking big. Thinking biblically. Being governed and regulated by the word of God. Hopefully you understand that humanists, because a priori, they reject scripture and biblical authority. They will never be regulated by the word of God. And they will, they're living in God's universe where only his rules work and his rules are revealed in scripture. They will never align well. They will never be productive. They'll never be orderly. All you're going to see with humanists is they'll produce death, destruction, and uh, debt. Whereas what we as Christians live aligned with God, we'll see We'll see the garden bloom. We'll see things happen. And we don't do this to th make things happen. We do this because we're charged to do it. And the consequences of our obedience will lead to those kinds of blessings. So may the Lord give you grace to be a kingdom parent in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we can't, uh, maybe we can applaud Gerard, uh, Gerald. <laughs> that is just yeah. fabulous, Gerald. That was really, um, that was a remarkable um, teaching. Um, what I appreciate about uh, Gerald, your teaching, is it's, it's always so clear. Um, it's uncomfortable because it's quite convicting. And so, um, like many, you speak, and I always feel fairly um, silly, but I think the value is you're speaking the word of God, and it, it's very clear. He's not unambiguous. He's clear, and as you say, we have to then measure our lives up to that truth, and there'll be gaps, um, and the process of what we're after is becoming more Christ-like every day, and, and so mm. that's what I really love about the way you teach. You don't compromise the truth. You don't apologize for the truth. But the reality is um, we're on a journey. And so, and, and to, to your point, there is no condemnation. There, there is no guilt. There should be Holy Spirit conviction 
and a Holy Spirit leading on what to do next. Um, mm. So, look, I really, really appreciate Gerald. If the the um, Q and A chat board has gone off, but there's just no way we're going to have we could stop the whole day and just answer all the questions on the Q and A chat board. So I'm going to have to try and synthesize some of the questions and. I'm sure as you answer, you're going to ask some, some questions. If you've asked a question that you don't think has been answered properly, um, talk about it in your discussion groups, your next discussion group, or, or talk about it afterwards. There's just some wonderful questions here um, by a lot of people. So what I thought I might do, Gerald, is, is in the Q&A, there's, there's obviously um, parenting and children. Those, those terms are uh, quite broad. As you said, you have uh, mm -hmm. children that are 40. There's a lot of mm -hmm. people, there's some questions here where I gather the children are probably still at primary school. Then there's mm -hmm. questions around teenagers and then there's questions around adults. So uh, mm -hmm. obviously there's a context. So one of the mm -hmm. qu first questions and I think you answered extremely well um, and clear, but again, there's clarity that our children are born unbelievers. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's one of those critical points that you made. It was a question mm -hmm. that a few people have highlighted. Um, can you just give a little bit more, just recap on that? Because I think that's that's a key sort of foundation that, that flows and it impacts everything. And maybe if you can talk about how discerning that differently ends up in different places. Well, if you don't recognize the fallenness of every human being, uh, you'll be deceived. Uh, you'll be deceived into thinking that uh, you can trust them, you can believe them, and you're gonna then be defined, the reality will be they will prove to be unreliable. But if you start out recognizing that they're fallen because <clears throat> of reproduction after kind, I came into this world fallen, and that's the only thing I can reproduce is a fallen creature because reproduction after kind, that's how God's universe works. You can only reproduce what you are. Then the only way I have escaped that is by the power of the Holy Spirit transforming me. That's true of my children. They have to have the power of the Holy Spirit invade them to transform them as well. We can't, we can't deny that. It, it, it's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant because we think of the little children as precious and cute and all that which they may be, but it's not going to be long before they're going to throw that temper tantrum. I remember, I remember going through this as a grandparent, my first grandson comes along and I look at him he's just so cute. I'm just loving, you know, having great time with him, playing with him and all that. I'm thinking, well, maybe this is an exception. Maybe, maybe he's not falling. And then it wasn't long before he has a temper tantrum. He's on the floor stomping his hands and feet and I'm not getting my way. <laughs> so, <laughs> I said, well, there went my theory. I was hoping for an exception, but no exceptions. That's the way it is. It's hard. And if you're given to mercy, uh, it's harder for you to accept that. If you're given to accountability, it's a little easier to accept. So it's hard for everybody, though. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fabulous, Gerald. Um, Again, we're talking about age of children. So let's stay on sort of a, an age which you'd say is, is uh, more susceptible. There's a, there's a comment around um, helping our children um, steward pain and protecting mm -hmm. them from the culture. 
-hmm. they could actually sound like they're saying opposite things because what we want mm -hmm. to do is protect our kids but then we want to shield them from the culture so can you sort of explain the difference because that's a key point for a lot of people well we don't need the culture to uh you know <laughs> the kids are going to have sin in of themselves the culture is just another another influence and when the culture is toxic like it is now uh it, it's deadly uh it's it's leading us to to really bad conclusions when i grew up i grew up in an environment that was largely uh, everyone in the, in the city that i grew up in were christians now i i, I wouldn't say that they were um they professed to be christians let me put it that way they attended church whether they really were regenerate or not, I can't tell you that. But they generally accepted Christian values. So my mom never worried about the value system of, of the neighbor or the children. We all had the same values. And when I played in the neighborhood, it doesn't matter what yard I'm in, that mother's in charge. And she probably had the same values as my mother. So it never was a problem. But now you've got such toxicity. You've got this transgenderism. It's, de it's deadly. There, there, that transgenderism is, it's trying to kill children. This is what the spirit of Antichrist is trying to do is kill. It's death. So you have to protect him from that. So now the pain, they're going to get pain in all kinds of ways. They're going to get pain from you spanking them for doing something wrong. That will be painful for them. But you, you know, as much as you can, you want to protect him from the culture. The, the problem I see with parents today is they think children can evangelize. Children are not equipped to evangelize. Well, first of all, we need to talk about what evangelism is. I think we largely misunderstand evangelism. Evangelism is not talking. That's what we think it is. Evangelism is living. Jesus made that clear in his first message the Sermon on the Mount, when he's explaining his gospel of the kingdom of God, he tells us what evangelism is. Evangelism is doing the will of God. It's according to the ways of God. When you do that, you're doing the works God called you to do, and God uses that as light to the world, and he will use that as he pleases. And you may have a chance to talk. But stop looking for opportunities to talk to somebody and start living it. Live the faith first, and then whatever opportunities you have to talk, that's fine. So children are not equipped to do this. They're not equipped to go to school and fight the battles. They don't, they don't even understand the battles. They're, they don't, the thinking processes aren't there. They've got to grow up. So in today's culture, more, more than when I grew up, you can't let them associate with just anyone. You've got to have a tight circle around them to protect them from things they can't process they can't process homosexuality they can't process transgenderism okay they can't process bestiality or how about polyamory you understand polyamory is coming this is going to be a, a new definition of marriage where it's any number of people any number of males and females to become a family polyamory is coming Pedophilia, legalized pedophilia is coming. These are just toxic things that are so out of bounds from Christian sexual morals. Kids have no way to measure that. You've got to teach them Christian values in the home. When they grow up, then they can begin to deal with these toxic issues because they've been trained to deal with them. They're not trained as children. They're trained after they grow up.
Yeah, that's that's great, Gerald. And and when you say grow up, um, I think many many people will think of uh, a linear approach. That's an age thing. Talk to. Can you just talk through what do you think growing up is? Because what I hear you saying is there is a period in life where the children need to be shielded and trained. And then mm -hmm. there's a period of life where we are to be the salt and light of the world. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the comments we're hearing from the feedback is, you know, the church is always forcing us to go out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. So can you expand yeah. a little bit that for us? Well, I think that that is a part of the influence of the great awakening, which we're living in the afterglow of the great awakening and the great awakening thinking was that we're supposed to get everybody saved. Okay. It's a very dualistic view. They were not kingdom. We are kingdom in the sense that we believe the Genesis mandate is the ruling mandate. We're here to be God's ruling agents. And Christ is the one that enabled fallen mankind to be able to do that. By regenerating them and empowering them with the spirit, we can now be God's ruling agents. But we do that by obeying him, ruling where we've been given authority to rule, starting with our families and then in the workplace, in the Christian community and in the public community, whatever, whatever authority we have there. We rule, we follow God's principles, and we bring those to bear. So that's, that to me is the kingdom approach. What is typical in many churches today is the great awakening paradigm where it's all about getting everybody saved. And there's no sense of discipleship, no really profound sense. They'll give lip service to it, but it's all about bring your friend and get them to make a profession of faith. We'll baptize them. And then next week they can help us bring more people. So it becomes that kind of thing. It's almost like God's objective is to populate heaven. But if you look at scripture, God is not looking to populate heaven. In fact, it seems to suggest that there's only going to be a remnant. So in many ways, I think you could argue that what is popular today is not what God is doing, which is one of the reasons is having such little fruit. What God is doing is building a people for himself, transform people who are growing and maturing in Christ. So you have to know whatever paradigm you grew up in. By the way, I grew up in that same paradigm. I grew up in a Baptist church, heard the same things, did the same things. It was a long time before I was really exposed to this truth through Dennis Peacock. He explained to me, helped me understand the gospel of the kingdom, and now that's transformed my life. I, I understand, I think I understand better than ever what it is to truly be a Christian, and it's not what I was taught growing up. Although I believe I came to Christ in that context, it's just they were limited in their understanding of what Christianity really was, so they didn't know how to guide me beyond that. So I think many of you are probably in that situation. You're just in settings where the leadership there just doesn't know the gospel of the kingdom well, and they're doing what they know to do. And so, yeah, they may be putting pressure on you to evangelize, and hopefully you're choosing to say, well, I'm going to grow and mature in Christ. And, and Matthew 5 tells me, as I do that, I will discern the call of God in my life. I will do the works I'm called to do, and I'll do them unto the glory of God. And when I do that, that is light. Getting on the street corner with a bullhorn is not necessarily light, unless God's called you to do that. What is light is what God has called you to do. So whatever that is, that's what you want to do. And that's how you want to live that life. You want to be under someone, godly parents, who will guide you and direct you into alignment with the will of God for your life. 
Yeah, amen. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to listen and absorb and facilitate, which is really hard. I can't do two things at once. So sorry if I'm not doing a great job because this is just gold. Oh, I think you're doing fine, but Natalie would probably have done better. Right? <laughs> Natalie would have done better. I'm taking, very, right. Carol, I'm taking very good notes. Everything well, Carol would okay. do better. Carol, Carol could multitask. I can't multitask. <laughs> <laughs> so now if we move towards um, the next sort of phase where, where we've got teenagers, We've got people that are now, you know, 15, 16, 17, and, and we're, we're, just, we're just in that process now that we've got these, these young men and women. How do mm -hmm. we guide them? How do we protect them? What do you think our role should be? Um, because in some yeah. ways you can't, you can't limit them at this point. Now they're starting to develop. So yeah. what is our role at that phase and how would you um, well, help us? According to, if you believe George Barner's research, his research suggests that the worldview of your child is pretty well set by age 13. So the first 13 years are critical. You know, you've got, this is when you really can pour in truth into them and they don't give you a lot of pushback. Once they hit around 13, um, they think they know something. And so now the war begins. And what you're doing is just trying to protect them so they can get through those teenage years and, <laughs> and get to where they think well enough to know the stupid things I was thinking at 13. I, I know that's not good. But at 13, they don't know those stupid things are stupid. So you, you have to just get into the mode of, of protecting them largely as teenagers. But the real teaching is first 13 years. Once you hit 13, it's doubly important that you are who you say you are. No hypocrisy. You live what you say you believe. And you stand, you've got to learn tough love. You're going to stand on truth no matter what. And sometimes that's going to lead to some really some conflict. And depending on the the you know how strong a personality your child has, it can be more or less. We had two very strong girls. We had, we, we had fights, you know, in the teenage years because they were going to do what they wanted to do. So I view the first 13 years as an opportunity to disciple them. And starting at about 13 to maybe 18, I'm managing sin. That's pretty much the way I saw it. And I think that's generally what's the case. There are exceptions. I, I know some young people as teenagers that just were beautiful through the whole time. Uh, one of my clients has got a young, he's got a son who's now in his twenties and he's just never been a problem. He's just always bent the knee to Christ and the word of God. It's just been easy. And then he has a daughter <laughs> that, well, we use the term ringtail tutor, uh, which <laughs> I means she is really tough. Uh, I guess that's something like mate. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> It's, it, you know, she's just, uh, oh, I've been around her some and she is a, she's a handful. Um, and he's, you know, it's just uh, taking him to his knees, you know, and he poured into her the first 13 years, just like he did his son, but it is, she's different. And because she has a different calling and God's going to use this in some way redemptively. So, you know, I'm trying to just keep him to calm down. Don't worry about this. We pray, we do what's right. Even if, you, you, she's mad at you and she tells you, she hates you. And she's never going to talk to you. She, uh, you'll hear all that kind of stuff. But what happens 
is about 30, the human body is fully developed. And when the human body is fully developed, their thinking processes are fully, fully developed, and they actually begin to act like human beings. Up until then, they don't look like human beings to you. But when they actually start acting like human beings, they'll say, thank you. <laughs> You've got to be able to take deferred gratification and, and accept that as a parent. If you can't do that, you'll just be very frustrated uh, parenting. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic, Gerald. Gerald, I remember hearing somebody saying, you know, uh, from about 15 to about 30, uh, parents go through a really dumb period where they don't know much. And yes. all of a sudden at 30, they become intelligent again. Yes, um, yes, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, that, that's wonderful. Uh, look, I've got a question here, and it's it's applicable at all ages, but staying in the theme of this 13 to 18, or even before, is how do, how do we teach our children to be humble, teachable, and submitted when there's a there's a stubborn will in them the, the, obviously that's going to go against their flesh nature how do we actually train it how do we actually bring that to pass first thing you do is model it for them you make sure that that you are that you're humble submitted and teachable whatever it is you want your children to do you do it if yeah. you don't do it uh then you're viewed as a hypocrite so Pay attention to what you're trying to communicate to them and ask yourself, okay, am I doing this well? Is it clear that I'm under authority? Is it clear I'm humble? Is it clear that I'm teachable? Am I a person governed by the word, regulated by the word? Or am I influenced by the culture? If I am, I need to repent and go and get back to the word. Uh, so you've got to model for your children what it is you're, you're wanting them to be. And if you do that, um, that they'll more likely believe you eventually, but they won't probably won't tell you they believe you then. Uh, they're gonna, yeah. they're gonna uh, sow their oats, is what my mom used to say. Sow their oats. The other term was <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> come down, uh, fall off fool's hill. I think is what she used to say. They, they're yeah. foolish. They do they do foolish things, and uh, you you've got to be as a parent. You've got to you've got to get strong in the Lord and, <clears throat> and lean on Him. Because um, you can't you can't go by what you see, because they are going to do stupid things, and you're going to be shocked. And you've got to be able to handle that and know God's that's okay. God's in charge, and model truth, live truth, no matter what. Yeah, great. And Gerald, I, I imagine most people on the call, um, we're all learning biblical parenting kingdom parenting maybe not mm -hmm. by example of our own lives we're probably learning it as adults trying to then implement yeah. you say model humble submitted and teachable as a parent mm -hmm. can you unpack unpack that a little bit what how would you well, see that ha actually happen if you see parents around you that you'd say yeah they're good kingdom parents what does it practically look like uh, if you're not under someone if you're not, if you're not, don't have a spiritual father in your life that you really are connected to and is really there to help you. Um, it's just hard to, to model it because be humble and submitted. You got to be submitted to somebody and being submitted means that, um, when they, when you're a spiritual parent directs you, you do it. And uh, 
what I, what I see happening today is a lot of people hear, okay, I'm humble. I'm submitted. Yeah. I'll listen to so-and-so. I said, what do you mean? You'll listen to him. Well, I'll listen to him. I said, well, does that mean you'll do it? And you'll say, well, I'll think about it. I said, no, that's not submitted. Now, if you've got a spiritual parent that directs you to do something, then you've got to do it. Now, well, then they say, oh, what if he directs me to do something I don't agree with? Well, that's the, that's when it's, it's nice to have another spiritual parent to talk to. You can go to another spiritual parent and say, this is what this spiritual parent says. What do you say? And you might wind up in a three-way conversation trying to work that out. As iron sharpens iron, so man sharpens man. That's what the Proverbs tell us. Expect that spiritual parents may disagree. So have a way to work through disagreements and come to some point where the spiritual parents are agreeing. Okay, this is what you need to do. And then you do it. So that's, that's hard because we're so used to autonomy. We're used to being independent. That's humanism. We're deeply immersed in humanism. We have to know that. And it's going to be hard to break out of it. You're not going to want to break out of it. You're going to resist breaking out of it. You're going to, uh, you're going to try to come up every reason you why you don't want to do that. That's not Christian. No, I'm sorry. It is Christian. Paul had spiritual sons. He was a spiritual father. And if you look at his disciples, he had the scripture records at least 18 that we know of that were under him. Two of them were called true sons in the faith, which means they were his closest. Peter had three, that is Peter, James, and John, and then the other nine, uh, and they were submitted to him. Now, did they always do it right? No, they didn't always do it right. But in the end, I think you see they matured where they saw that that was the right way to live. And Paul certainly, when he became to Christ, he matured to the place where he said, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. That's what you're trying to go for. Get to that level of maturity. Spiritual parents are a big part of it. They will, you will never submit to them if you're not humble, submitted and teachable. Wow. That's fantastic. And look, um, Natalie, Carl, Bruce, please jump in. If you can, uh, if you see anything you want to follow through, there's just so much in that. Um, there, there's a heart cry in one of the questions and, and, uh, I guess it's probably on everybody's heart is, okay, we hear this, we've made mistakes. What do we do now? Like we're here. <laughs> Conviction is good. You know, ask the Lord to forgive you. Ask the Lord to teach you the lessons you should learn from what you did wrong. Uh, believe me, my wife and I've had many times of conviction as we looked at our children and what we did wrong and We've repented and we've asked them to forgive us and we prayed, uh, all those things we've done, but we've really tried to lean on the Lord and trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That tells us that faith precedes guidance. If you want guidance, you have to trust him, not yourself. This is one of the big errors I see in people trying to walk this out <clears throat> is they, they'll claim to be under spiritual fathers, but they really retain the trump card. You know, in, in the card game, the trump card, you want know the trump card is? Yep. The trump card is the card that trumps every other card. So if a spiritual father tells me to do something and I don't want to do it, I just pull out the trump card and I trump it. And so I don't do it. 
that's what most people do. And that doesn't work. That is not humble, submitted and teachable. So you're going to have to, you got to surrender all and you got to trust the Lord is working good in it. No condemnation. The enemy will try to take you on a trip where you will feel condemned. And that's why I stress this tonight. No condemnation. God knows exactly is what's happened in your family. He knows every detail about it. Nothing has, has surprised him. He's not thwarted in any way. He has a will for you and your family. Seek him. Get godly people around you, helping you discern what he's saying about whatever the situation is and know that he will guide and direct you and it'll be good. It may be painful, but it will be good. If, if I could come in here, uh, I assume I'm communicating. Yeah, yeah good. Well. Um, uh, uh, Gerald, and, and it's come up in the question session, and it's certainly in my son Carl's on the call here, it's certainly come up with me and with Carl a lot over the years, that we're not asking people to completely withdraw from the world. So how do we balance that? I mean, one of the comments in the questions was, do we all buy a trailer and sit in a trailer park? So, so yeah, no. ju just, just, just cautions. How do we balance that? Well, I, you know, you, you can't withdraw from the world. There's not any way to do that. You know, buying a, buying a trailer and going to a trailer park, you're not out of the world. You're still in the world. I mean, so uh, you're just kidding yourself. You've got to discern uh, what the spirit's saying to you in terms of where your family needs to be. And if you feel like you're in a situation that's really, really toxic, where it's going to be very difficult and the Holy Spirit is leading you to get away from that, then I think you should be seriously looking at that. Get a counsel, get spiritual parents to help you think that through and, and, and discern what God is saying. But you, you, there's no way to escape the world. You know, that's not what it, what that's not a way right way to think about it. The way to think about it is the level of toxicity you've got to deal with. Okay. If your life is, you're, you're being threatened with incarceration, um, you know, like the apostle Paul was, uh, as he went to Jerusalem, he said, you're going to be incarcerated. And he said, it doesn't matter. I'm supposed to go. Well, that's fine. If you're supposed to go, go, but it needs to be a conviction of the Holy spirit in you. It needs to be confirmed. And you see acts from acts 21 on to the end of the book is all about Paul's final journey to, to Rome and, and takes us right up to right before his death. And so, uh, yeah, that you may have a call to live in a very toxic situation. You may have that call, but you may have a call to leave it. You've got to be open to what you need to do to, to be for the safety of your family, for your own safety and protection. And I don't think any one of us has to be a masochist. We'll have plenty of suffering. It's going to come. And some of us are going to be martyred. Some of us will be called to be incarcerated. We don't have to seek it out. Paul wasn't seeking that out in Philippi. You know, it came. Uh, so he was there because he thought he was supposed to be there. He didn't know he was going to get incarcerated. So it's always we're always trying to align with God and try to seek what he wants us to do. We, get, we have to be careful. We're not trying to manipulate God in some way. You know, trying to say, okay, if I do A, God will do B. No, give that up. You know, our job is to obey. God will produce the results. Sometimes the results don't look good to us unless we have metaphysical awareness. 
and then we'll be able to see it and see he's doing good in it, even though it doesn't look good. When Jesus died on the cross, it did not look good, but it was the greatest thing that ever happened. Mm -hmm. So metaphysical awareness enables you to understand the cross. You've got to be able to think that way. And that takes a spiritual parent helping you learn how to do that. Wonderful answer. Thank you, Gerald. Wonderful yeah, one, answer. Yeah, look, and, and Gerald, I think I've read some of the same questions and, and the reaction is, okay, we get an RV, do we need to homeschool? What do we need to do? And, and I think your answer sort of says there isn't a single answer. Yeah, is there, there isn't a single answer other than you want to seek the Lord. That's the answer. How does he want you to seek him is the question. I think today where we are with schooling, uh, I think as a maxim, you cannot trust any school as a maxim. Okay, you hear that? A maxim is something generally true, but there are exceptions. So if you find a school and you check it out and you're persuaded that it could be a healthy place for your child, then you find you may feel led to do that. But generally, uh, you can't assume what my mom sent me to school growing up. She didn't think twice about it. Okay. It's not that way now. Carol was talking to a friend of hers earlier this week. A lady up lives about 100 miles away from here. And she was talking about her granddaughter going to school. And she actually went to the school to look at it. And she went to the library. And the librarian very proudly announced. There was not a book in the library that was published before the year 2000. And of course, <laughs> this lady was wise enough to know, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of great literature that was published before 2000. You've eliminated it all. Well, what's your, what have you replaced it with? We replaced it with all this, this LBGTQ stuff and this critical race theory stuff. So she knew this is toxic. You can't do that. So you've got to be very careful about schools today. And you got to be careful about neighborhoods. Know this, you know, you can, you can really try to protect your children as much as you can from the culture until they're able to understand it. What you're trying to do is do things at the appropriate time. When they can't understand things, you explain it to them. But you explain it. The world doesn't explain it. And that's where we've got to be very tuned in to what we need to do. And everyone's situation is going to be a little different. But the principle is protect them from the spirit of antichrist and any access he has until you have a chance to explain the various things that he's going to attack them with and you prepare them then to face those attacks yeah very good very good gerald um there's a few questions around what do we do with adult children that maybe not walking in the way of the Lord or not aligning themselves. How do we parent well? How does this message trans transcend that age? And what do we do? You model. And whatever they will let you do, uh, you know, you, you do it. They'll let you pray, pray. If they'll let you read scripture, read scripture. You know, if they'll let you talk about issues of life, talk to them about issues of life, whatever, you, whatever they'll let you do. But don't try to force things, make things happen. Don't push on them. Uh, you know, be kind to them, patient with them. Um, don't, don't interfere with their lives. Keep in mind the Holy Spirit's working with them too, in whatever way he chooses. And your job is to be light. And the way you're going to be light is you align with God, his will, his ways, his timing, his glory. That's what you do. 
So ask for grace just to live well in front of them and let them ask you questions. By the way, in, in evangelism, um, arguably, the best way to evangelize is to be asked. If you look at Acts 2, when Peter got through with his first sermon, he did not extend an invitation. That's what we do. He didn't. He waited till they asked. He responded to them asking. And that's what you do with your kids. You live it. You live truth in front of them as you do. Truth is right in their face. And one day they just might ask and you might get a chance to talk. But if they don't ask you, they might ask someone else that could tell them truth. I'll tell you how I pray for, for my for family members that, that I don't seem to have any ability to help. I ask the Lord to open their hearts and that he would send someone into their life that can speak truth to them and they would have the grace to hear that truth. So that's how I pray for family members like that. Yeah, I mean, Carl, you've got a question? Uh, my question is lots and lots of different thoughts. Um, <clears throat> there's one thought I'll add, but it'll take us back on a different theme. On this one with, with Joe, with his people in my life that I am wanting to share with or feel burdened for, I, my first thing, I asked the Holy Spirit that for an opportunity where they open the conversation. And so I, I regularly pray that the Holy Spirit will prompt them to a question that then opens the door, totally as Gerald's saying. And then you're there with that invitation. That normally, in my experience, hasn't happened, though, until they've seen enough of my life that there's something that they're curious about. Um, yep. the, the other thing I was thinking, which is why I was looking up as Gerald was talking, Carla and I have a bit of a joke we might be trying to tell our children something, I don't know, whatever, an area of life we're trying to coach them on, ears are closed. Some buddy of theirs comes along, says the exact thing we've been saying to them for the last three weeks, and suddenly they've had this great new idea of what they're, how they're going to approach a bit of their life. So there are just some things that are hard to hear from mum and dad sometimes in your life. So, yeah, Gerald says you should pray that God sends someone else to, to be the voice that they can hear. Yeah. 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 Well, like, this like is where grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> this is where you you've got to be okay with not getting the credit. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. You can't care nice. who gets the credit. Uh, Whoever the Holy it. Spirit uses, it doesn't matter. So good. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally, Gerald. Yeah. Uh, one one thing I wanted to loop back to that was an interesting thought when when Gerald had your spider diagram, your mind map up. It struck me because the particularly the moment we're in where that secular liberalism is just so aggressive with the people they perceive as their enemies. There's so much hate. And one of the things that occurred to me, Gerald, is that the world, the secular world, see the same net result of the level of malevolence and hate from the kingdom of darkness at work. But because they deny the spiritual realm, they have to attribute that blame to human actors. So they find humans who must be the villain. So it's the bald white guys. It's the it's the conservatives. And it just struck me that we look at things, and I think this is what Paul's at. Remember, our warfare is not against the flesh, but against the, we do not war against the flesh, but the, the, the 
principalities and spirits and powers of this world. If mm-hmm. you don't, if you deny the supernatural and you don't believe there's another kingdom at work or there's these kingdoms at war, you still see the pain, the destruction, the death, the, the curse that happens. And now you must find a human actor to blame for it. And I think that fuels so much of this hate that we see. I also think that even in the church, our eyes or our mind or our worldview is more closed to the supernatural than we realize we are as well at times. Yeah. So just a healthy reflection, perhaps, on some of that that enmity that happens in the space. Hmm. Yeah. See, I would I would say that what you're observing is that they don't know the Lord well. I think as you get to know the Lord well, you learn his ways. And his ways are sometimes mysterious. For sure. For example, why do the wicked prosper? Mm. That looks like a mystery. It's really explained very clearly in Psalm 73, but most people throw their hands up. I can't believe that. Look at their, this wicked person's making so much money. Okay. And of course, they've got a couple of problems. One, they're confused about what success is. And, and two, they think that, you know, that, that God is some way, you know, not fair. Uh, no, no, you, you just don't understand. You just don't know the Lord. Well, when you know the Lord, you'll understand that. So we're always trying to grow ourselves and knowing the Lord better and better. Peter says this, all that you need, first Peter, second Peter chapter one, verse two or verse three, all that you need for life and godliness comes through the knowledge of God. And that word knowledge is the word, it's an intensive form. It's epigonosco. Gonosco is the word knowledge and epigonosco is the intensive form, meaning precise knowledge. We get to know him precisely as we study his word. We see how he works. We understand his character, his nature, his purpose. And now you're getting to know him and you're growing in him. And so now you can live life much better because you know more about how he works. And you know Girl, he uses pain. I'm sorry. If I can add a quick side note to that, which I know has helped me, but helped a lot others about the wicked prospering. The book of Habakkuk, which is only three chapters, is a great discussion about the prophet taking that question to the Lord. And then the mm-hmm. Lord in chapter three, bringing it back to him. But basically, I don't want to dishonor those three chapters. I encourage you to all go and read them. But basically, at the end, God said, you got to watch this thing from a big picture point of view to make mm-hmm. any assessment of who's prospering and who's getting blessed. And yeah, I, I think that helps with that discussion that seems to come up all over the place again right now. Um, Natalie, you had that question. No, I just read a great question on Slido. Um, I can't keep up with them all. So yeah, I right. thought this was wonderful. Um, somebody said, Gerald, we've worked really hard to teach our kids to manage their freedom in Christ, and now they are mm-hmm. teens. Has this mm-hmm. been wrong? No, I think teaching them godly principles are important. I think you have to know when you are raising them, uh, and teaching them these principles, they may go through a season where they're prodigals and you got to be okay. You know, it's, it's fairly common to have a prodigal child. Uh, in fact, you know, in the story of the prodigal, there were two prodigals. 
There was a prodigal that stayed and a prodigal that left. One looked like a prodigal, the other did, but they were both prodigals. Mm -hmm. So in those teenage years, yeah, those are goofy years. And the final years of growing up where they're, they're physically kind of there, but inside the brain is not there yet. Uh, those are tough years. So no, you train them, you train them growing up, you teach them the principles. And most of all, you model those principles. And then when you get to your teenage years, you bat in the hatches and get ready for battle. Uh, that's what happens. <laughs> and I think the, the, the key thing that you've spoken before about Gerald is even if they know the principles, they live by the principles, they have to know Christ for themselves. So we can't well, mistake having trained children who know the principles, who can quote it, who live by it, who don't know Christ, because that's the only thing that will really help. Mm -hmm. So I think you've spoken about that before, Gerald, and it's, it's key that we, we stay there. There's just so many questions I can't physically keep up with it all. But I think we've we've really grabbed the heart of the questions, and and Gerald, the way you've been able to to um, answer them, there's a few people that said we're so encouraged that Gerald has somebody he can't influence. So that was one of the feedbacks. <laughs> I've got somebody I can't influence. Yeah, <laughs> the list is long. <laughs> Some, yeah. To be honest, sometimes Gerald, you don't look human. <laughs> well, I, I, I would I would say to that comment, Gerald, you've incredibly influenced everyone on this call today. That's something I would sincerely say. I would sincerely well, kind say you. thank you. Yeah. It's uh, been been a tremendous joy, Gerald. And if you were in the right time zone, we'd have you all day to ourselves. But uh, mm -hmm. the uh, battery is about to run out. <laughs> Gerald's going into power save mode. Yes, power yes, the power, power save, save mode is about to kick in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, look, I think the other thing, it's clear, um, and you've said it a number of different ways, but we can't do this by ourselves. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of questions about, well, how do I do this in a fallen world? I, I think the fact that we're around people that can challenge us and we're in community and we've got spiritual parents or people we can, we have to do this as a, as a team sport because as mm. an individual family, uh, it's mm. going to be just too difficult. Mm. You know, Dennis has an expression. He doesn't like to uh, walk with people that don't have a limp. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, now he's not yeah. interested in walking with people who have crutches. But he's interested in walking people that have a little limp because he knows they've been beat up a little bit, but they've, they've been able to recover. Okay. So yeah, we all get beat up. It's hard. This is a battle. This is a war. And you've got to know nobody does it perfectly, uh, but we have to know what perfect looks like. And we keep, you know, we'll keep pressing on to the high calling, the high calling of Christ, living like Christ, thinking like Christ, acting like Christ, and getting the results that Christ got. And by the way, the results Christ got, Christ got was he was crucified. So you keep that in mind that you could walk this out and it can be very, very challenging. But whatever God has called you to, you have grace in the Holy Spirit to do it. He's a good God. He will give you grace. Wonderful. 
Look, I think that's it's been a wonderful session, Gerald. Uh, we are mm. so appreciative of that. Um, yeah. If we didn't get to your questions because there was just so many of them, um, please bring them up in your discussion groups. We, we, this is an ongoing conversation. Um, and I know Gerald's always ready to have further discussion. We just need to let him sleep tonight, but he's always ready. But make sure you keep the conversation going.